Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we are thrilled to have a longtime friend of the program, Michelle Jones, back with us. Uh, so she's been a, a part of coming to Antioch for many years, but so you know that she's a gifted speaker. You know that she is a pastor up at Imago Dei, one of our sister churches up in Portland. But I actually learned something new about her this morning. Uh, if you have used the Bible Project resources, which again, we are going to be using for a women's group coming up, she is in the Sermon on the Mount video series that we're going to be starting and if her voice sounds familiar to you, she voices Lady Wisdom in many of the Bible Project videos. So she is Lady Wisdom herself, <laughs> here to share some of that wisdom with us this morning. So let's give her a warm Antioch welcome. I get to be Lady Wisdom and I get to be the anointing, by the way. <laughs> That has been such an such a amazing time to be able to spend with the people of the Bible Project. Their offices are above mine. I'm convinced that the only reason I am Lady Wisdom or anything else for the Bible Project is they were like, who can we get to talk about this? Oh, Michelle's downstairs. Let's just go downstairs and just get her. But uh, I have been having such a good time. And I've learned more about the Sermon on the Mount than I ever have in my entire life. Do yourself a favor, not because I'm in it, but because they actually, I mean, the stuff that they've, they've managed to come up with is incredible. So that women's group, you guys are gonna love that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get, they have a map on the wall in, in the offices when you go upstairs, and it's a, it's a kind of a diagram of the Sermon on the Mount, how it's outlined, and I didn't know this, so when you, by the time you get to the center, very center of the Sermon on the Mount, 
the Lord's Prayer, is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, structurally. It's really an incredible, incredible thing. I'm trying to get them to actually make that available as, you know, as some kind of a PDF to be able to send to people. We'll see if we can actually get that to happen. Happy New Year, Antioch! I'm so happy to be here. You guys are family for me. You know, you just, every time I come here, it just makes me glad and happy that I'm here. We only have, uh, you know, I, I preach two services here, and most people, are you tired of preaching two services? I'm just like, it's Antioch. <laughs> I'm just happy. I get to see human beings. Um, so it is the new year, and we have a tendency in the new year to do what? make resolutions, focus on ourselves. I'm gonna lose this 10 pounds. I'm gonna you know, do this with my finances. I'm gonna be this way with my family. And we tend to be very self-focused at the beginning of the year, right? We set goals and we try to reset the things that we just got all crazy and nuts. So by the end of the year, last year, it's like, I'm gonna get it all back in order. It's gonna, it's gonna be set. But that is kind of the opposite of epiphany, isn't it? Epiphany, when you think about it, is actually a way, when you think about light and you think about revelation, it is a desire to try to attract you to be outer-focused, to be other-centered, to look at Jesus coming as a way to be hospitable to the entire world. And so what we find ourselves doing as very human souls is at the beginning of the year, we're holding two very um, contradictory ideas in our hands at the same time. We're trying to think through what it looks like to, to focus on myself and figure out how I'm gonna be different this year. And at the same time, we're being asked to actually be outer focused and other centered and to look out into the world and to see the light. But this is good. As uncomfortable as it is sometimes to hold more than one contradictory idea in the hands at the same time, it actually sets us up pretty perfectly for the passage that we're gonna study today. Because Mark is, is actually kind of that. Now Mark is, by most historians' accounts, the first book that was written in the New Testament, it, it, it's first. And it's first because the, the thought is that all of those people who were eyewitnesses, who could tell what was going on, who could say, I saw this, I touched this, I experienced this, they were starting to die off. And Mark was written so that people would be able to have an account because these people were all dying off. So Mark is known for his economy of expression. He just kind of jumps in. When you think about Matthew, Matthew begins with this whole genealogy of Jesus, right? And then you think about John, who is the poet, and he just kind of does a remix of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And then you've got Luke. Luke, who starts off, you know, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down, blah, 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 blah. The birth of John foretold, blah, blah, blah. The birth of Jesus foretold, blah, 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 blah. Mary and Magda, Mary and, and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, and then the Magnificat, and blah, 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 and then John is born, and blah, blah, and Jesus is born, and blah, 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 and then he gets through all of this stuff, and then he finally gets to, and Jesus was born, and 
a genealogy. And so you look at all of that stuff in Luke, but Matt, but Mark, Mark just jumps right into it. Mark begins with the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and we're in. <laughs> He's like, yeah, Isaiah said this, voice crying in the wilderness, there's John. That's Mark 1. And I love that about Mark, but you don't want to sleep on Mark because the thing about Mark is, is that he packs a lot of really good information into a very small space. It's not so much that he's a minimalist as it is that he's more like a trash compactor. He, he puts all the things in and then smushes it and puts more and more and more and stuff and smushes it. And our passage today is no different. Like you could actually, Take that passage and you could go into those verses, those few verses, four through 11, what is that? Seven verses. You take those verses and you could actually exhaust yourself before you exhaust what is in those verses. But I don't wanna to go to theology school today. I did not come here to bring you the wrath of God or the words of God or the this of God. I'm more in today in a mood to just kind of look at the whimsy of God and the poetry of God and the beauty of God is what I want to talk about today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you a story at the end of this sermon. But first, I want to look at three really lovely images in this passage that are contradictory. They're like a paradox. And I wanna look at those images before we get to the story because I think that they give us a really good idea of what it means to just kind of see this light that we call Jesus and hold this light and then reflect this light to other people in the world. Is that okay? Okay, so I am, I am very much a fan of this whole upside down kingdom thing that we have going here. I'm sure there are people who looked at Jesus and just said, do we have to do it this way? Why can't it just make sense? Why does it have to be that the greatest in the kingdom has to be a servant? Why does it have to be that we drink bliss from a bitter cup? Why does it have to be that we walk forward into yesterday and pass there to the day before? Why does it have to be that? Why do we have to fill ourselves by pouring out? Why do we have to do that? Why does the kingdom have to be upside down? And I think sometimes God is just up there going, because, because <laughs> it makes me happy. And, and I have to say, it makes me pretty happy, too, because it makes me feel like the kingdom is this beautiful, whimsical, poetical place that just kind of gives us this beauty that we couldn't get otherwise. And it gives this mystery. And mystery, when you think about it, is a thing not so much that it's a problem you have to solve, but the kingdom is a mystery, meaning that it is a thing that you must walk into, and then it will make itself visible to you. And that's what I love about the kingdom. And so these three images in this passage are of forgetful remembering, touchable transcendence, and conspicuous or showy humility. Now I want to take those three things and I'm going to look at them one at a time so that we can talk about what, what it means to be in this space in Mark. So let's start with forgetful remembering. In verses four through six, it says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. So the first thing we see is this, this picture of forgetting what you're used to and what you've become comfortable with and then remembering what and who you were made for. The forgetting is for the purpose of making space for us to remember again. Now I love the fact that John did not set himself up in the city. Now he's popular, the whole countryside is coming out to hear him. He could have been like the ultimate mega church preacher back then, right? He could have been a preacher with sneakers. He could have been the guy who walked around in some vintage Air Jordans with a, with a cool you know, Prada shirt on and everything and just kind of, I want to look like I'm just kind of dressed down, but everybody knows that my sneakers cost you know, $5,000 and whatever. He could have been that guy. He could have been the guy who just said, you know, hey, let me, let me associate with the powerful. Let me spend some time with the people who know the people, the people who are the people. Let me do that. But no, he doesn't do that. His, his, his sermons are very well attended because people left the comfort of their homes and came all the way out into the wilderness to hear this man speak. This is no small thing. This is a guy who preached repentance. He preached confession. He preached a return to God. And so you have these people who who you can, you can see them leaving the things that make the most sense to their brains, the things that they're used to. And in this picture of them leaving what is familiar to come out to the wilderness, to hear this man preach is very much a picture of like Exodus, right? You have these people who spent years and years and years and decades in slavery, only to be delivered out into the wilderness. And when they are delivered out into the wilderness, they were so used to being slaves that once God got them out of slavery, they had to wander in the wilderness so he could get the slavery out of them. Because how much time did they spend going, we need to go back, we should go back. They had raisin cakes, they had all this stuff, and why are we out here in the wilderness? I want some water, I need some meat, I need some food, I need some this. And you've got this God, and you've got Moses, who I'm sure was completely impatient, but you've got this God who who watches these people and he says, I know, I know. It's because this is what you're used to. This is what you are comfortable with. And so I wonder if it's just curiosity that took them out of their houses, but then they get out to this place away from everything familiar, away from the stuff that they're used to eating, away from the beautiful soft palates that they slept on, away from all of those fancy clothes that they wore, and they get out into this dirty, dry wilderness, and then they see this guy who's not even dressed in comfortable clothes. He's not He's not looking like he's slept in weeks. He's got scruffy beard, he's a mess. He's eating bugs for crying out loud. And honey to sweeten him up, I guess. You know. So this guy, this very strange, weird guy who's out here, who's preaching, but who's got his eyes locked on the horizon, who is saying, he's coming, he's coming. And I wonder if that made them think about how not ready they were 
for the coming Messiah. And so as the new year begins, I want you to ask yourself, what are you holding on to that you need to leave behind? What do you need to forget that's getting in the way of your remembering right now? Nobody dragged these people out to the wilderness. They went out there in droves to see John. And we would do well in 2024 to make periodic trips to the wilderness, away from the things that hold on to us, that define us, that console us or sedate and medicate us, to, that anesthetize us from the discomfort that we have in life. That is the place of remembering. It is in the wilderness where you see the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. If you have lost God, you will find him in the wilderness. And so not only is there a picture of forgetful remembering, but there is a, a picture of touchable transcendence. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. So in this scene, we see the father, the son, and the spirit together. It's one of those rare instances where it's clear that they are all together. And that in and of itself is amazing and it is lovely. But I think what's even more special about it is that that amazing trio is here with us, here on earth, seeable, touchable, as John, as John says in uh, 1 John, that you could experience him. And when you think about the names of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they all have names that are unique to them, right? But it's interesting that all three of them have in common a name that means I'm with you. Now you see Jesus called certain things that God and the Holy Spirit are not called. The Holy Spirit is called things that Jesus and the Father are not called. The Father called some things that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not called, but they all have a name that means I'm with you. Jehovah Shema is the God who is here. Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us. The comforter or the one who walks alongside as an advocate is the Holy Spirit. There is something to be said about the fact that all three of them have a name that means I'm with you, I'm there. I'm close. David talks about God as, as the one who is there no matter where he goes. He says, I could make my, my bed in hell. I could go to the furthest reaches of heaven and you will be there. Brother Lawrence said, the, holy, the most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. That is every moment to take great pleasure that God is with you. He's more than a God who is there for us. He's a God who is here with us, real and tangible. He's nigh, he's close. Yolanda Adams, who is a gospel singer, she says he's just a prayer away, but I would suggest that he's even closer than that. He is bone in my bones and he is flesh in my flesh. My eyes are filled with him if I would just look up. My ears are filled with him if I would just incline my ear. When my mom was suffering from Alzheimer's before her death, 
she would remember him and forget me. She was 20 plus hours in labor with me and looked me in the eye and had no idea who I was. But let me tell you, that woman talked about Jesus all the way until the end because he's closer than her betraying mind. He was closer than even that. And so not only is there this image of forgetful remembering, and not only is there this picture of tangible transcendence, but there is also this conspicuous humility. When we think of humility, we think about Jesus being lowly and poor and, and, and humbling himself in Philippians 2. And that there's this hiddenness about humility that doesn't want to bring too much attention to itself. It's not showy, it's not bright, it's not in your face. But here, we see both of those things. We see this humility, but we also see it in a very conspicuous way. I mean, let's think about it. The sky splits open. That's not a small thing. The Holy Spirit comes floating down like a dove and lands on Jesus. This is not like just some hidden, quiet thing that happens. It's very public. Remember, people came out in droves to see this. So imagine if the heavens just split this place open right now and the Holy Spirit came down, which would be me, by the way, because I'm the anointing, <laughs> would come down and then settle on this lovely person right here. You, you all would be stunned, would you not? And so this is what is happening in this space. And not only is it doing that, but then you have John, who in one of the other accounts, in, in John, he says, um, John the Baptist, in the book of John, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He shouts that out. And then you've got God who's calling out Jesus going, this is my kid, I love him so much. And I'm very pleased with him. And then you've got the Holy Spirit who's just like, what's happening? I'm here with Jesus and stuff. So it's all just like everybody's just calling Jesus out. And Jesus is in public. He's not just going, oh, no, no, stop it, cut it out. He's taking it all. He's taking it all in. So it's very conspicuous. And yet at the same time, it's also a picture of humility. Nobody is actually talking about themselves. God is talking about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is focused on Jesus. Jesus is not talking about himself. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is always talking about the Father. The Holy Spirit is always just taking care of business and he's not calling attention to himself. God, it says in Colossians, it pleased him to have his entire fullness seen in Jesus. And so there's this humility about all of them. Even John, it says in verses 7 and 8, and this was his message. After me comes the one who is more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He said, untie his sandals, not tie them. So he's not even thinking, I'm going to tie your sandals up so you can go out and do your Jesus-y stuff. No, he's like, you've done your Jesus-y stuff. You come back, your sandals are filthy and ridiculous. It's the worst job in the world. And I'm not worthy to untie those sandals, those dirty, filthy sandals. The point of John's entire life was to point others toward Jesus. In fact, he says, he, says, he must become greater and I must become less. 
And in doing that, he was never more like Jesus because Jesus pointed to the Father and the Father is pointing to the Son. If you imagine that God, who is an invisible God, if God, the invisible God, stood in front of a mirror, the image you would see in the mirror would be Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the one that gave you eyes to be able to see that Jesus was in that mirror. That's how humble and amazing they all are. In 2024, think about setting a goal to point others toward Jesus. We literally have one job to do as believers. We steward the attention of others. We are the voice crying in the wilderness because make no mistake, this world is a wilderness. It's a dry place, it's a dark place. It's all the things that the world should not be but is because of sin and because of darkness. We are called to be the bridge between people's attention and the only thing that matters, the only story that matters, that the steadfast love of God endures forever. From Genesis to Revelation, by the way, that's the only story that's being told. One story, all those books. The steadfast love of God endures forever. Looking at Jesus, that's God's steadfast love. Looking at Moses, that's God's steadfast love. David, Mary, Ruth, all of it. God's steadfast love endures forever. It is all one story about the love of a jealous God, the love of a sacrificial Jesus, the love of a unifying and transforming Holy Spirit. I wanna end our time together with a story because it wouldn't be me if, it was, if there was no story involved. And it's called The Story of Once Upon a Time. Once upon a time, once upon a time, appeared before God, downcast. How have you been, asked God. It was a long, miserable sigh. I'm sad, he said, and if I'm being completely honest, please do be honest, God urged. I'm a little upset, go on. Well, once upon a time said, gaining a little confidence, I'm incomplete, I'm a beginning with no middle or conclusion. I'm a pitcher who winds up but never gets to throw. The stories get all the attention, even they lived happily ever after and the end give people a reason to smile and a sense of completion. Me, I'm all over and forgotten before anything matters ever happens and I'm lonely. After a pause, once upon a time, stopped pacing and looked up, are you listening? Yes. You think I didn't do a very good job creating you and you wish you were more important. Well, when you put it that way, I sound rather full of myself. Well, you kind of are, but, <laughs> but I get it, I get it. What I was about to say is that you wish you were more important because you don't know how important you actually are. How so? How am I, hold that thought, God interrupted. It's the moment before daybreak in Missoula, Montana, and Ingrid Halverson is in her backyard waiting for me. Who's Ingrid, shh. God leaned forward a bit, his attention focused, then he winked. A second later, he leaned, he leaned back, a satisfied grin on his face. <laughs> I never get tired of that woman, and she never gets tired of me. Now, back to you, my blasphemous little friend. <laughs> blasphemous? Once upon a time was immediately distressed and began to weep. Oh no, Lord, I didn't mean to. God waved a dismissive hand. Most people don't mean to blaspheme. They just try to tell me how to do my job, question how I do it, or demand that I hurry up about it. It comes with the territory. I'm God, but I'm also good and merciful and your father, and I love you. I'd rather, be I'd rather you be overly familiar with me than overly afraid to approach. Breathe, son, you're just a little ignorant, not, a, not in danger of hellfire. Now, where were we? 
You said, I wish I was more important because I don't know how important I am. What does that even mean? Now that's a step in the right direction. Instead of telling me what I didn't do, ask me what I'm doing or what I meant or what I think or what I want to accomplish. Say, I don't know, God, be curious. How is that possible is one of my favorite questions. It means you're ready to hear a voice other than your own, to see more than you already see, become more than you already are. God waited in silence that wrapped itself around them both. Once upon a time could feel tears stinging the backs of his eyes. His voice was small and unsure. Am I more than what I see or what I know about myself? So much more. And you are not alone. Really? Afraid to hope, once upon a time, looked into the face of God. There he saw truth and light and love and joy. He saw excitement and anticipation, and his heart felt God's heart whisper peace into him. So he sat down to listen. All stories tell us something, God began. A prince rescuing a princess, a horse and a girl in a race, four children finding an entire world inside a closet, a family lost in outer space, a man obsessively chasing a whale, a woman teaching a grown man how to read, a blind child showing her teacher a new way to see life. Stories are exciting and, and they're sad and they make us laugh and they, they ignite our imaginations. Stories get our attention. Once upon a time, cut in. The stories take you so many different places and make you feel so many things. I'm the same always, good old once upon a time. People want to rush past me just to get to the story. God's right eyebrow kicked up just a notch. Sorry, please go on. <laughs> Forgiven, as I was saying, stories get our attention. But what most people don't realize is that every good story is always about just one thing. If a storyteller has done his or her job well, the story will say one thing. God paused to watch a caterpillar crawl out onto a branch of a tree and settle there. Won't be long now, little guy, he sighed with a smile. Once upon a time was at the edge of his patience, but he didn't want to interrupt again, so he waited while God tickled the furry creature. All good stories, God continued, are about how my love endures forever. It is the greatest, uh, it is, it is a greater than all things. It is all powerful and all knowing. It heals all things. Love never fails. Every story is about that? Once upon a time wondered and God heard his thoughts. Every good story is about that. Because I created stories to tell the world about me and about how I love. Creation itself is a story, all of it. When I said, let there be light, I was telling a story. Light overcomes darkness, good overcomes evil, wisdom overcomes chaos. Trees drop their leaves in the fall and are naked in the winter to make room for their branches and the, and the flowers in the spring and the fruit of the summer. That's a story. Life is lived in seasons, each one preparing us for the next. This caterpillar will weave a cocoon around itself and soon, and one day, from that tiny little tomb, new life will come. That's like the story of Jesus, exactly. Life, death, resurrection, new life. Once upon a time, thought about this, then he said slowly, everything is a story, and every good story points to you. But I, not, not but, God cut in. Every good story points to me and, and what? And you are the greatest story. God let that statement hang in the air. He waited, once upon a time waited too, feeling helpless because he didn't believe what God was telling him. 
In his heart, he knew he had come to an end because he couldn't see anything great about himself, much less greatest. He was ready to confess his faithlessness when he remembered something. He took a deep breath, squared his shoulders, and looked at God. How is that possible? He asked. Yes! God slapped his hand on his knee and once upon a time jumped as everything became new before his eyes. He had never seen such a bright or beautiful thing as the gladness that reached out to him from God in that moment. It shined and warmed and comforted and gathered him up into belonging all at the same time. Oh, my boy, God said, and once upon a time heard his voice like cool waters rushing through the soak and soaking every thirsty place inside him. The world has become a dark place, full of bored and angry people, God said. There are stories being told all around them, but they are hard of hearing and harder of heart. How will they recognize a story without a herald to announce its arrival? Astonishment lit once upon a time's face. Me? Yes, you. You're not incomplete. You are the first story. The voice cutting through the, all the noise to say something matters more than this wilderness of thought and deed. And if all good stories are about me, God prompted, understanding struck. Then I'm telling the world that you are coming. Yes, you make the world aware of me. Without you, people would just go about their lives without knowing the incredible was in their midst. I'm like a moment of daybreak. No story can begin without you. So important are you that every language has a version of once upon a time. I have sisters and brothers in every tongue and every nation. Stories begin with a beginning. It is the crook of my finger inviting people into my presence and hopefully into my eternal love story. In Lithuania, they say, beyond the seas, beyond nine lagoons. In Czechoslovakia, stories begin with beyond seven mountain ranges, beyond seven rivers. In Kenya and Tanzania, your sister says, I remember something that our father told me, and that is this. In Chile, they say, listen to tell it, tell it to teach it. In Korea, some stories begin with back when the tigers smoked. There's a series of stories in America which begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> in the beginning is the once upon a time of the Bible. In Ghana, people say, Gatanan, Gatanan, Teje Takomo, which is to say, a story, a story, here she comes, there she goes. The story is a woman, like wisdom in the book of Proverbs. God paused and looked out upon his world, a sad smile turning up the corners of his mouth. I walk among them, but they don't see me. I speak, but they don't hear. I tell them stories because they are afraid of the truth. The truth is, I love them, but they are suspicious of my love. The truth is, they will die without me. The truth is, they are not as good or as powerful or as in control as they would like to be. They are hiding from me, so I have to hide from them. In stories, once upon a time said, very good. Stories call out the best to the best parts of them, the parts that crave relationship, joy, and creativity. Stories draw them by their imaginations. Bring them close so I can tell them of my love. So your work is to wake them up and invite them to pay attention. Once upon a time, considered all of this. It's like having everything and nothing at the same time, he said. I know who I am, thanks to you, and that feels like everything. But I have nothing, because I don't actually belong to myself, do I? I'm words, and words can only belong to the one who speaks and the one who hears. I go where I'm sent, nothing more, nothing less. Hmm, and how does that make you feel, God asked. Once upon a time, thought one more moment. 
The next moment, a story made itself bright inside him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I belong to... Then a grin cracked his face wide open and God laughed. You look like Ingrid from Missoula at daybreak. I never get tired of that look. And with that, God sent once upon a time back into the world to begin new stories. And he lived happily ever after without end. God, God bless this church, bless these people. Be who they need you to be and show them how to be the once upon a time for a hungry world. In Jesus' name, amen.